0: Good morning, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Chronicles, we've been in Corinthians so long, and it's a lot like Chronicles, (laughs) 1 Chronicles 17, verses 1 through 15. Let me start with this question, if you had all the money in the world, and you could give one gift to God, what would that gift be? We give gifts to those that we love because we want to express our love for them. We want them to know how much we care for them. And so some of you will agonize over that perfect gift for a loved one for Christmas. You want it to express in just the right way how you feel about your loved one. somehow if it could capture the essence of your affections for them, you want to find that gift. But the thing is, the quality of this expression is not measured in simply how much money the gift costs, right? It's measured in other things. Perhaps the the effort that you put into it. Or the amount of thought that you put into it. uh, Or how well you were able to match what you thought they would like to what they actually would like. So... What would you give to God if you could give him some gift to express your love for him, your devotion to him? What would express it best? Well, in our passage for today, we read about David's desire to give a gift to God. We read about David's desire to build a house for God, a temple for God. But what we'll see is that God had other desires. God had other plans. In fact, they were quite the opposite of David's. Instead of David expressing his love for God, God would express his love for David. And indeed, his love for all of us who belong to him through David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Look at our text with me and follow along as I read it. It came about when David dwelt in his house that David said to Nathan, the prophet, behold, I am dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under curtains. Then Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart for God is with you. It came about that same night that the word of God came to Nathan saying, go and tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord, you shall not build a house for me to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from one dwelling place to another. In all the places where I have walked with all Israel, have I spoken a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to being a leader over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father. And he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him. As I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house. and my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words. And according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Our father as we. Come to your word, we pray that you would feed your people by it. That you would nourish us by it, that you would reveal to us all of the benefits you have for us in Christ. Show us, Christ, that we might trust him, that we might love him, that we might treasure you in hearing this word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In this passage we learn... That even though David's plans for God were great, God's plans for David were greater still. David's intention was to express in some way his great love for God, his devotion to God. But God's intention was to show David his great love and his great faithfulness yesterday, today, and forever. So at Christmas, we celebrate the truth of the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. O God, my Father, because God is faithful for the God who promised a Messiah long ago made good on it the day Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. You'll remember when a couple of disciples walked with Jesus after the resurrection, the scripture says, "...beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." And Jesus spoke to the Jews who rejected him and said in John five thirty nine, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So all the scripture from first to last ultimately is God's word to us concerning Jesus Christ. In Him we have life. It is in Him we have salvation. It is in Him we must trust. And so that's what we're seeking, what we're aiming to do through this Advent series, is to see Christ throughout all of Scripture. So let's look and see how this passage points us to the One who would come and is the reason we celebrate Christmas. Notice first David's desire to build a house for God. The setting of this story is great joy. So in chapter 12... Verse 40, we read, There was joy indeed in Israel. David is the king, and it seems like everything is right with the world. Their armies have been victorious. They celebrated as they moved the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. Now there were some hiccups along the way. Uzzah put out his hand to save the Ark of the Covenant from touching the ground, and the Lord struck him in his anger. And as a result, it caused a three-month delay in this joyous procession to Jerusalem and taking the Ark of the Covenant, what represented the very presence of God in coming to Jerusalem. But David continued to be successful in battle. And we read in chapter 14, verse 17, The fame of David went out into all the land, and the Lord brought the fear of him on all nations. And look at chapter 15, verse 1. Now, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And they made preparations to move the ark. The priests were consecrated. They had singers and musicians with all kinds of instruments so that sounds of joy would be ringing out th- through this procession. To give you an image, it was what you might think of as. Uh, Like the Raleigh Christmas Parade, this, this crowd of people coming together and there's joyful music and we're all excited and we're cheering and we're waving and we're clapping. There's singing and music and shouts of joy in anticipation of the ark in joyful procession awaiting the arrival of the ark to the place where David had prepared. So they arrive, and the celebrations continue, sacrifices of worship to the Lord, and they sing this song of thanks at the end of chapter 16. Just look at a bit of it from verse 31 onward. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Then say, Save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us and deliver us from the nations to give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. A time of great joy for David and all of Israel. It's like Christmas time. There's this joy, anticipation, excitement. And then in verse 43 we read, Then all the people departed, each to his own house, and David returned to bless his household. And it came about when David dwelt in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I am dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant, of the Lord is under curtains. There's this unsettledness in David's heart. Is it right for he and the others in Israel to have such luxurious houses and many of his people to have their own houses, but God is in a tent? Behind curtains? The Ark of the Covenant is in curtains? It doesn't make sense. Surely, a God like our God, who has given us victory on all sides, deserves a house of gold and silver with precious stones and fine weavings with brilliant colors. David must be thinking, I want to do something to show how worthy our God is. The Ark needs a dwelling worthy of this God. I want to show him and our nation And the nations around us, how worthy and great God is. I want to build him a house. So he tells Nathan, and it seems good to Nathan. He doesn't have a problem with that. Go ahead and do all that is in your heart. But God had other plans. So he speaks to Nathan and says, Go and tell this to my servant David. You will not build me a house. Look at what he says in verses 5 and 6. You won't build me a house. Basically, I don't need one. Ever since I raised up Israel, I've made my presence known in a tent, going from tent to tent, dwelling to dwelling. Have I ever asked my people to build me a house? No, I'm not asking for one now. And look at verses 7 and 8. This is what God has done for David, his past faithfulness. I took you when you were a shepherd, following the sheep around, and now I have made you a leader of my sheep, a shepherd who leads my flock. I've always been with you. I've protected you from your enemies and I will keep doing what I've been doing all along. You see at the end of verse 8, God transitions not to what he has done for David, but what he will do for David in the future. And we're going to get to that, but notice what's going on here. David wants to do one thing, show some honor in his devotion to God. Not a bad thing at all, but God has different Plans, and it's this. You want to do something for me, David? Well, I'm going to do something for you. This is my plan. Now, it's not so much of a rebuke as a redirection, it's a reorientation which reminds David of how this relationship between him and God works. As Paul reminds us in his sermon to those of Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he, gives, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Listen to how one commentator puts it. David wants to do something for the Lord, and we may be sure that this desire is appreciated. But the fact is, says the Lord, that what I do for you is infinitely more important than anything you can do for me. Our whole relationship from start to finish is based upon my grace. I have done this and this and this for you. And if there is to be any house building at all, it will be first and foremost that I will build you a house. And this, friends, is what Christmas should cause us to remember. That our entire relationship to God is based not on what we do for Him or on what we can give to Him, but on what He has done for us and what He has given us in His Son, Jesus Christ. It, is a, it should be a reorientation of our minds of the relationship between us and God. I sent out an announcement recently about helping Rollsville Elementary School with what's called their holiday shop. So here's what it is. I haven't participated in this before, but this is my understanding of it. A parent gets the child up out of bed and goes through the routine of getting them ready, gets their breakfast ready, combs their hair, makes sure they're dressed and ready to go. And then he takes out his wallet and he holds out some cash and says, all right, hold out your hand, here's some money for you. Let's say he gives him $10 and the son takes that money to school. His dad drives him to school, takes his son to school, and... The son takes the money to school and goes to this holiday shop in which he can now buy a present for his dad. Sure, he takes his time. He wrestles what would be a good gift to give to my father. What would show my devotion to him? What would show him that I really love him? And he buys a present with his father's money. His father having taken him to school and picking him up, he wraps it up or they wrap it up for him at school and then he brings it home to dad to open it on Christmas. Here's my gift to you. And isn't this similar to our relationship with God? All that we have, all that we can do, all that we can express to God, everything we have has come from his hands. It has come from his grace to us. In fact, He has even given us the desires that we have to serve Him and to love Him. He did that when He gave us a new heart at the preaching of the gospel. God doesn't need anything from us, He is sufficient in and of Himself, He is independent in and of Himself. This means God exists in and of himself and is not dependent on any other thing or being for his existence. His name is Yahweh, the Lord. I am who I am or I will be who I will be. Complete sufficiency in and of himself. And yet he has condescended down to us. He has come down that we might know him. Consider consider this the complete independence of God and the complete dependence that we have upon God. Perhaps during Thanksgiving you spent some time considering your dependence upon God for everything. But it would be it would be right for us to, to think about this for a moment. Have you considered lately how absolutely dependent you are upon God? We just sang, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. It should be a, a cry from our hearts. We need you every single hour of every single day. We need you. Consider your life. You would have no life if it weren't for God who made you fearfully and wonderfully, who knitted you together in your mother's womb. Your very life you owe to Him. As you think back over over your life, maybe you can remember some times where you came close to death. And it seemed like there was a sudden rescue. I have a friend who it's like he has nine lives. He has almost died many times. And yet in the providence of God, he has his life. This is owed to God and his mercy towards him. Consider every breath that you take. The health that you have. The physical gifts that you have in in your home. In your family. Any time of joy that you you receive that you enjoy, the food that you enjoy, you are completely dependent on, on God for everything that you have, but not only physically, consider also your spiritual life. You know, it's easy to forget our dependence upon God for everything we have physically and everything we have spiritually. Think about a job that you've gotten good at, perhaps. You know, maybe your first week there, you you, you didn't know the ropes you, you, you were completely dependent on other people for showing you how they do things at this job. And you, you, you were dependent on them. You had to go to others for questions to figure out, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm not sure how to do this job. But then over time, the next week and the next week, you got more proficient at it. You could do it. And eventually, two years down the road, now you can do it completely on your own. You don't need anybody's help. Sometimes we can approach the Christian life in this way. We start out recognizing our dependence, complete and under dependence upon Him. But then we begin to learn we can do it on our own, or at least we think we can. Consider your salvation, your new life in Christ. You are dead in your sins and trespasses, and the Holy Spirit at the preaching of the gospel came in and gave you a new heart. And you rejoiced with faith in Christ. This was not your doing, this was the doing of God. You're completely dependent on Him for your justification. Or what about your sanctification? You are completely dependent upon Him to work the fruit of His Spirit in your life. Hour by hour, you are in need of the Lord and His grace. We are completely dependent upon Him. This is a wonderful truth of God's grace to us. God is absolutely independent in and of himself, and we are absolutely dependent upon God for everything. And he has come down so that we might know him and enjoy his presence. That we might love him and enjoy his closeness to us. We may desire to give a great gift to God, but there is nothing we can give that will match what he has done for us and what he has promised to do for us in Christ. So we have considered David's desire to build a house for God, but let's consider now God's determination to build a house for David. What we have in these verses is what one commentator calls the single most important event in the life of David. God's covenant promise to Give him an eternal kingdom. This is a unilateral covenant. That means it is a one-way covenant going down in the direction from God to David. It is a divine grant. It doesn't matter what you do, David. Here's what I am determined to do in my plan and for the good of my people and my glory. Let's see what God says he will do for David. Beginning at the end of verse 8. I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Look at the end of verse 10. I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. And when you die, I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house, in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. God promises David a name, a place, a peace, subduing all of his enemies, a house, a son and an eternal kingdom. And looking back over some of these promises, the author of Chronicles, hundreds of years later, hundreds of years after these events took place, could certainly say that they had been fulfilled, at least in some temporary sense. David's name was great. It had gone out through all the land. He was well known all around. And after all these years, the name of David was great still. So the author of Chronicles and the people of God were in exile in Babylon, away from their home. And the name of David had come to represent the hopes for the future. As God's people were forced out of their home, they probably thought, if we only had David, if only we had one like David who would rescue us, who would rule over us, And God had fulfilled, at least for many years, his promise of a place for his people, a place of rest. For God had made David a house, a royal dynasty. For hundreds of years, David's sons ruled over God's people in Jerusalem until the Babylonian captivity. But what about a son? Hadn't God fulfilled his promise to David for a son? Solomon was born, after all, and he became great, and he built a temple for the Lord. God set his love on him and never took it away. And yet, Solomon's reign came to an end. He sinned against the Lord. He took foreign wives to himself, do you remember? And he set up places of worship for other gods, so the Lord disciplined him. In fact, what we see with each of these promises is that they had temporary fulfillments. But the fulfillments were never quite right. They were never quite fitting of what God had promised. And so God's people, still away from their homeland, still in captivity without a king, they waited, they waited for the one who would rescue them, for one who would have a great name, who would be a great king over God's people, for one who would establish justice and righteousness and give rest to God's people on all sides. They were waiting for the one who would set up God's kingdom once and for all. And doesn't it remind you how we wait and long for things to be made right? Of course, it happens every four years in the elections. Many are waiting for the one who will come and make everything right in America again. Or maybe on a more personal level, we wait for the right situation in life to come along, where where everything will finally go smoothly as we want it to, where everything will click just right, where all the parts of the machine will, will... go just how we want them to go. We wait for the perfect job or the perfect family situation, something, anything that will make everything right in our lives. But have you considered that we, in doing so, we are placing all of our hopes and our trust in things that can never bear the weight of those hopes? Perhaps and truly in all of these hopes, in all of these waitings, we're really just longing for Jesus. We're really just waiting for Him. We're, we're desiring that He would come back and make all things new. The People of God in the Old Testament were waiting for the Messiah to come. And we are waiting for our Messiah to return. And how ought we to live in the in-between, in this in-between of the Lord's coming and the Lord's coming again? What will it mean for our lives and our pursuits that we are waiting with eager anticipation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Consider your own pursuits. How does our eager expectation of the Lord returning impact your pursuits in the here and now? Consider the emphases in your own life. What is it that is important to you? What is it that takes up all of your time what is it you invest your energy and your money in? And ask, are these things reflective of the fact that Jesus is coming back? Could people look at your life and say, he or she is holding out for something better? Or do people look at your life and, and say, he's, he's going for all he can in this life. He's aiming for everything he can in this life. See, God's people then were waiting for the Messiah, and it affected how they lived. It affected how they thought. It affected their daily life. King after king came, and there was hope. Maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one. Maybe that's what we've been waiting for. But time and time again, they were disappointed because this king or that didn't live up to the promises God had made. But then there came one whose name was Jesus, or as Matthew puts it in Matthew 1:1, 1, 1, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Or as we read in Luke chapter 1 verses 30 to 33, the angel said to her, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. See, although these promises were fulfilled temporarily in some manner or another, Christ fulfills them perfectly. Christ fulfills these promises that were made many, many years ago to David. He has a great name, as Paul says in Philippians. God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Christ, is He not preparing a place for us? Not here on earth, but in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, in the new earth. Jesus said to His disciples in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself, that where I am you may also be. And has not Christ given peace to His people? He is the Prince of Peace, and He has given His people rest from His enemies by subduing all His enemies as He suffered and died on the cross for sinners. He put to shame the enemies of God and the enemies of His people. And He promises peace to all who will come to Him. When He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus is the true temple of God, for in him the full deity of God dwells bodily. He is the house of God, and he is building a house for God. And we are that house, the temple of the living God in which his spirit dwells. Jesus is the son of David. But there's something different about this descendant of David than all the other sons for he is also the very son of God fully divine fully human one in essence with God the father and God the Holy Spirit and there's something else different about this son in the parallel passage of our text in second Samuel 7 God says I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But this son, unlike all the other sons of David, didn't commit any iniquity. We read of him in Isaiah. He committed no sin and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet, what does the scripture teach us? But that he took our sin upon himself, that he took our sins and made them his very own. And though he did not sin, he still suffered under, under the rod of men and under the rod of God he suffered under God's wrath that was due to us this friends is a king like no other he is the son of David the king of Israel the son of God and our savior and notice recognize Christ is still building his house God is still building his house through Christ in the preaching of his work it was just a month or two ago that we heard of people At one member's company coming to Christ at the preaching of the gospel. And more recently, friends of another member becoming Christians, professing their faith in Jesus Christ. God is building his house through the preaching of the gospel. And these are now brothers and sisters who have been welcomed into the house of God, into the household of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So as we hear these promises fulfilled in Christ, as we think about uh, Christmas and how God has shown His faithful to, to us, These recognize these are promises, these are truths which are to be treasured up in our hearts, but they are not treasures to be kept to ourselves. You'll probably see the, the Christmas carol this season. You remember Ebenezer Scrooge, rich beyond any of our wildest dreams, and yet he kept everything to himself. To the point where, People were starving at Christmas because he refused to give his money. And yet we recognize after the dream, he finally experienced the joy of sharing a treasure. And we recognize in Christmas that God is still building his house through Christ, that Christ is building his house. And how is he doing that? Well, he's doing that as we share and encourage one another, as we encourage one another by the preaching of the gospel, As we gather together regularly, God is building this temple. He is growing us in maturity. He is growing us brick upon brick into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And as we share the gospel to those around us, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, as we preach Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and risen from the dead, God is building His house. Even now, He is fulfilling His promises. Even now, He is being faithful And he will be faithful until the Lord returns. Let us pray together.